I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So I'm just sort of briefly um, going to introduce the book just in a couple of sentences for those who haven't read it yet. So um, the idea was to um, challenge conventional ideas around social mobility and which particularly in fiction are really often um, narrated as triumph over tragedy narratives or they're connected to mythologies around merit. And I used the example of a writer, Corey Farr, um, winning a literary prize, obviously not quite unlike myself winning the Goldsmiths Prize in 2021, to make the case that it's not quite so straightforward. So Corey wins the prize, is catapulted into contexts of social power and opportunity, supposedly, but nothing quite plays out um, as, it's as they're expecting it to. So things go wrong, they constantly have to contend with their difference and with their past catching up with them in the shape of this freaky Bambi character. And so what I'm reading is the very beginning. So it actually needs kind of no further framing. I'm just going to read five minutes from the beginning. Um, the chapter is called Cory Does Social Mobility See How That Goes? I found myself at Koshma Circus beneath the old bandstand's prominent pyramid-shaped roof contemplating a UFO. When I say UFO, I don't mean spaceship. I mean it in the literal sense, unidentified flying object. Circa half a metre tall, it hovered directly in my eyeline. It radiated neon beige, what a concept. I just stood there, one hand on my head, the other on my hip, considering the likelihood. We're still thinking on it, still processing, when I noticed someone or something moving behind me. I turned around and saw it was Bambi. When I say Bambi, I mean Bambi, but not as we know him. On top of his famously unsteady legs, he had four spider's legs, grand total was eight. Besides, he had multiple sets of eyes, like that Sarah-filtered kitty on Instagram, or most common spiders, pavok in one euro language. The phone looked at me, batting four sets of lashes, giving disarming smile. Off he went, hustling around the bandstand, rattling the local blue tits to the core. My modus operandi was dissociation, and tonight was no exception. This was a deer-in-the-headlights situation, and by deer I mean myself, not Bambi Pavok. I was at a loss what to do, especially about the task I'd been sent to carry out. Did I say I'd won a mad prize, likely by mistake? The award for the fictionalization of social evils goes to chair of the judging committee saying my name, Corey Farr. That had been at the online winner announcement I'd attended with Drew Shumsky, my soulmate and partner, earlier tonight at home in our flat on Socialny Estate. Drew going, shut the front door, what's going on? I'd missed much of what had followed the announcement. I just sat there in my white fruit of the loom type charity shop t-shirt and watched myself on the live stream. I'd worn grey cotton joggers, t-shirt tucked in, a detail wasted on camera, of course, 
black brogues, I'd got them involved. I was fairly certain, though, that in the after-session to the public announcement, the prize coordinator had asked me to go Koshma Circus and collect the physical representation of the cultural capital I'd just acquired. Go get your trophy, she'd said. Do it quickly, before the judges change their minds. I hadn't been sure if she was joking or not. So I told Drew I'd be going. What now, they'd asked, would be an hour's walk at the minimum, even if I cut through the little woods just south of a state. No matter, I'd left straight away. Koshma Circus was an ornamental mound at the center of a social housing estate in the east of the international capital. Surrounded by 13-story-high concrete apartment blocks, it felt fenced in. Blackthorn, hawthorn and elder bushes grew in concentric flower beds between street level and the first tier and again between the first and second tiers. Historical bandstand on top. Problem was, I couldn't see any trophy. Just a UFO and Bambi Pavok, pampas grass in mid-distance. Was I in the wrong place, I wondered. Had I misunderstood the instructions? Detail hard, I want to say, not been forthcoming. More like withheld. It'll be self-explanatory, the prize coordinator had said. The assumption had been that a winner would know how to collect. That prize culture etiquette, its unwritten rules and regulations, would be second nature to them. But I did not know how to collect, and they were not second nature to me. I'd not won an award before, and neither had anybody I knew. I leave it at that. Obviously, this is fiction. I'm not writing a historical, a, a historical account of a, of a queer figure. I'm very specifically writing a book is of fiction that includes even surreal elements. But yeah, what does it mean to take inspiration of someone's catastrophe in a way as well, in, into Orton's case? The ethics, yeah, I guess it's up for everyone to discuss. I think in fiction, almost lots of things are fair play, especially if, it, um, if the ambition is to mobilize a, a kind of a, a queer sort of collective, sort of a sense of collectivity that goes beyond the present. So it was important for me to tie these queer histories and also working class histories in with, the, with Corey Farr's presence, because that's how we live as well. I mean, we don't, we, our presence is obviously entirely shaped by those who came before, mm. especially in the context of literature. I mean, we are so, I'm, as a writer, so shaped, so, so, so um, inspired, and my entire practice is shaped by writers that came before me, often queer writers. So I see it in the sense that the Joe Orton, and writers like him are already in my books, whether I name them and whether I use their, their autobiography or not. So it's just another way of, of sort of time traveling in that way, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I suppose in terms of the other um, figures that have been important to you, when you talk about mashing together popular culture, sci-fi, literary fiction, um, it feels to me like that has a relationship to like new narrative. So, so we got to know each other yeah. originally because you had proposed, uh, we were talking about, you, you were pitching a research proposal yeah. about queer new narrative, which, yeah. we, which is this experimental 
um, writing movement that started in San Francisco in the 1970s and then and includes people like um, Dodie Bellamy and, and uh, Kevin Killian, Robert Gluck, people like that. And you were very interested in why Britain didn't have a queer narrative movement, like experimental narrative movement. Yeah. Um, but the work of, say, Kevin Killian is very influenced by that um, mashing together of different genres. Would you say that that, that is another influence? Like yeah. That's, so do, do you guys know about new narrative, generally speaking? It's interesting because it's not, it hasn't crossed over properly mm. to the UK, I would say. Mm. So there's a really, um, there's this kind of like a, a queer gay, uh, arguably gay, um, if, um, formerly innovative writing tradition that happened in America since the 70s, like, like, um, um, like Dermot said. And it's never properly crossed over into the, into the UK, still to this day, arguably. Mm. Like the, the writers aren't publishing with mainstream um, publishers, mm. uh, if at all. Kathy Acker was like, tangentially attached, as was Dennis Cooper. And yeah. so there was a, 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 a brief moment where they almost yeah. cracked the mainstream. Yeah. But, um, and were published here as well. That's right. So there was like a there, there was a there were certain very few of the of of the figures that were like you say adjacent somehow to the tradition, made a reputation for themselves here, but not proper. But the interesting thing about new narrative was not just that they were um, working class to to some extent um, gay, and that they foregrounded this this subject matter in the. Um, books, but also that they did it in a formally highly innovative way. So it wasn't, um, so the other very interesting thing about them was that it was a proper writing community. So there were writers who exchanged their work amongst each other. It was way, way removed from what we often think of the author who's like sitting in their study, writing so in a solitary way, you know, talking to nobody. This, this tradition, new narrative, completely dismantled that. They, they, they really um, put a lot of emphasis on the collectivity of writing, on the community of writers and publishers. They, the, the publishers were also part of that wider community. And that kind of... Um, when I started writing fiction, which is, um, I kid you not, I've been writing fiction now obsessively and really folk, in a focused manner for 20 years. So it's kind of a long time. And when I first started writing, there was like a desert. There was a desert of um, queer, innovative writing in the UK. Or at least I didn't find it. It wasn't accessible to me. It was completely not there. Hence, um, so much of the um, kind of like community, build, community building work um, that to some extent I've done with, with others here in the audience, like Rich Porter and... Um, other unrelated people as well, um, had to happen in a way in order for, for us to meet each other, to, for queer writers, queer poets, to meet each other, queer artists, to meet each other, queer publishers, to meet each other. So this sort of work had to happen, and it didn't really happen up until sort of more widely, sort of maybe 2016 or something, 2015. I mean, there's obviously lots of things going on, but this is when sort of something started to emerge from ground, from grassroots level up. 
And so, yeah, new narrative is a massive influence on me, not just in terms of the, the writing techniques and so on and so forth, but also in terms of like the, the community building, community building mm. to some extent. I mean, yeah, and you have been this kind of dynamo behind the emergence of uh, a really vibrant um, queer and, and trans literary scene, I think, in the yeah. UK at the moment. Well, thank you so much for saying it. I mean, there's, there's lots of people doing this now and there's, in, the, in the poetry scenes, there's been stuff going on all along. And, but yeah, it, it had to be done. It had to be done. I, just, I didn't really want to do it, but, but it had so to be. To it. it was really important, mm. yeah. Mm. And now we have a much more thriving queer and trans writing culture in the UK, much, more, much better in the space of, you know, eight, eight years or so. Mm. Yeah. Um. I suppose the new narrative writers were very interested in um, the connection between visual art and writing. And um, on the front cover of, of this book is, yeah. is a collage by Linda Stupart. Yeah. Um, a really fantastic collage. Um, and, I, I'm, and I'm astounded that you got this in the cover. I mean, like, you know, because usually there's like a back and forth, like, oh, I don't know if this is going to sell. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but you got exactly what you wanted. And yeah. There's a real kind of dialogue going on in the book, but it seems to me, between the artwork and, yeah. and, and the writing. Could you, could you talk a bit about, about the, the, your work's relationship to visual art? Your, uh, yeah. yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah. I'm actually going to talk a minute about the cover because it's meaningful and it ties in with some of the stuff that I said before. So, um, exactly, so you've now, you, learn, you know now that I've come through sort of a grassroots, I've come through, through indie publishing scenes, um, and obviously this book is now out with, with Hamish, Mish, Hamish Hamilton. And um, again, a massive shout out to Simon. People keep asking me that. So how has, been the, how has the change been? How has, how has it been from going to, uh, you know, um, indie publishing where I had to do, or I did a lot of it myself to begin with, um, to now working with, um, with a, I mean, a, such a fantastic, you know, publisher like Hamish Hamilton. But the, thing, the reason why Hamish Hamilton are so fantastic is because they basically took exactly everything I brought and encouraged it. I mean, I don't know where, where Simon is, but that's like unheard of. Yeah, <laughs> that's like completely unheard of. So I've had my second book called We Are Made of Diamond Stuff, which was basically published by a micro press um, called Dostoevsky Wannabe. They were in Manchester, they were two working class people. They ran this press, a print-on-demand service. They had absolutely zero budget. So um, we did astoundingly well. Like we, so we sold like in the first year 4,000 copies, which for those of you who know, is kind of a lot for a publisher with zero budget. Um, and I had got um, a, a friend of mine and an artist I hugely admire, Linda Stupert, to design the cover for that book, We Are Made of Diamond Stuff. It's been reissued since, and this is not Linda's cover, but um, uh, the original cover of We Are Made of Diamond Stuff was done by Linda Stupert, which is the artist that now Hamish Hamilton encouraged me to commission to make a cover especially for Cory Fighter's social mobility. So it's like really including all my past, all my trajectory, feels like it has been included and encouraged and kind of like realized in this book, 
Because let's face it, the Dostoevsky wannabe cover, it was amazing, the collage was amazing, but the print quality was appalling. <laughs> yeah, there was no money there. It was like absolutely appalling. It looked like whatever. But um, so I'm made up um, for the fact that Linda got their artwork now on a, this, this properly produced penguin book in a way. So this, this means a lot. So yeah, art. Art means a lot to me because, um, <laughs> because I, and this is also a historical reason, um, as I said, when I first started writing in my late 20s, um, I was the only novelist I knew. Everyone else in my social circle, that, which was particularly the queer and trans community in London, were either artists or musicians or some academics. There was no one that I knew, who I knew who was a novelist. Nobody. There were then later, I knew, got to know some poets. So there was like, as I said, a queer trans poetry scene. But I knew absolutely zero novelists. So I was always more tied up in the art culture to begin with. I was doing my writing for, you know, crazily <laughs> to some extent because it didn't really have anywhere to go. I was doing writing novels, but my friends were more embedded in the art scenes, in, in the London art scenes in a way. So I come through, through, um, through these scenes much more. Obviously like in the last, this is like we're talking 20 years ago, sort of in the last 10 years I'm much more centrally um, located within literature, mm. arguably. But it's in, I, I think it's, um, it's, in, it, it, it's a, that's another reason. I, I like sort of, um, I guess, sort of what we might call interdisciplinary approaches to novel writing. So I get a lot of inspiration from art to this day, and I write it. It informs my writing massively to this day. So it's not just literary precedents. There's always like art context in there as well. And like you mentioned as well, there's always a lot of popular culture in there. So it's sort of disrupting this... Um, this sort of idea that literature is always separate from, for example, reality TV. So I deliberately bring them together to, mm. some, in, to some extent. I mean, it, was ju it just struck me in particular that um, there's this line that goes, um, purple clouds hurtled across a pink and beige sky. <laughs> and it felt like this, oh, okay, it's a collage but it's kind of like a moving collage. Like um, it, it allows for some kind of movement or some kind of velocity as you move through the narrative. So it just felt like collage was the best way to think about the way that you write. In the same way as maybe John Ashbery, like thinking about John Ashbery in terms of collage is the best way to think about John Ashbery's yeah. poetry, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Take, yeah. yeah. Take that home with you. Yeah. <laughs> I will, I will, I will. <laughs> um, so I guess, I mean, I've got, I've got lots more questions, um, but um, it's a quarter to, yeah. so, um, so maybe people might have some questions. Okay, yeah. Uh, we, got, we, got, we got one right here. Uh, the mic, yeah. Hi. Um, Talking about Joe Orton, um, we, we all know he's famous for his plays, but he also wrote novels as well. And um, the variety of them, I mean, it's some of the early stuff which he wrote with Halliwell were based on Furbank. But also one of his later books, uh, which was published posthumously, Head to Toe, 
that was very much like a gigantic fantasy story, mixing elements of social satire. Um, do you feel any any sort of conscious connection with that, or do you, do you see in the same, working in the same kind of theme as him in yeah. that way? Yeah, so thanks for asking that. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Joe Orton wrote um, this novel, Head to Toe. Yeah, this, it's true. Which is, you know, it's, it's weird. It's a, about a person who travels through a giant, through the body of a giant. Um, I, I think um, I do definitely feel an affinity to Joe Orton's work, even his, his plays, in the sense that they're hugely irreverent. They work with humor a lot, which we haven't talked about, which I, I, I obviously work with with humor um and they're like obviously they're like um really um sort of um uh, they're really um to some extent radical social critiques and i think in that sense there are lots of overlaps between us and in fact one one reviewer um, in the, one reviewer of my previous book has actually also commented, has pointed that out. I think the they, they reviewer remarked that I was a modern-day version of Joe Orton, which is obviously not, not the case, but it made me laugh and it, um, it made me think about some of the parallels that are obviously there and some of the affinities. Um, yeah, I just want to say thank you. Um, I can... Relate. I have my own eight-legged, uh, spider-eyed Bambies, like in herds. Um, you know, um, I I remember encountering the the concept of like being exhausted at the point when you reach like entry level. Like it, you know, the 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 journey to arriving at entrance, yeah. being being like such that. You're just like already tired, mm. and and I re relate really hard to that. So I want to say thank you for bringing this into the world because it's another it's another way for people to understand themselves. Um, I'm hoping there's a lot of clues in there, <laughs> um, and because you're now, you know, you're like this recognised author, it kind of gives weight to that. So it's like it's not just a, it's like a tool but also something that people can point to and say, this is what I'm talking about. So you've changed the world, so thank you. <laughs> oh, bless you. And, and to, to, I guess, like, to make this almost a question, I would sort of say, <laughs> um, you know, do you have any advice for, like... <laughs> but then I, I anticipate the question is, like, it's already inside. Just thank you. Thank you so much. I, I mean, I... I I, that means obviously means everything. Is um, yeah, I think um, some people might precisely recognise what um, Rebecca was talking about. This idea of that um, that um, that you arrive. That, so, for, for example, people with my last book, people have said, "Oh, fantastic! The, your first book. You know, now now you can really get started." And I'm like, "I've done this for 20 years." <laughs> I'm and so people think I'm fresh-faced and hugely energetic. And okay, fair enough, I am. So it's like, but I'm also I also have a 20 years experience of of being a writer, and um, and it, yeah, it comes. So it comes it comes with its challenges. 
when people see you emerge at a point when you're ready to retire. <laughs> I mean, I'm joking, but but um, I'm say what I'm saying is that the sort of the, the route for some people to arrive at entry level is so long, and that's that's um, that has. I'm trying to put a positive spin on it. It might have its advantages because obviously you have a certain competence by the time you arrive there. You have a certain confidence. You kind of know probably a bit more who you are than you did 20 years ago. But it also comes with a whole. Uh, it comes at a cost as well. Um, you were talking about like failure and queerness and also pop culture, and I was kind of thinking about. Like, yeah, like failure and queerness in like queer theories, like really present in like, you know, like Jack Halberstram and um, like Jose Esteban Munoz and stuff like that. And I kind of wondered, because just and was thinking about your other books in terms of, you know, the, the characters and the stories involve so much failure and not doing like in the criminal justice system or immigration or you know, these fantasies of multicultural Britain, like that mm -hmm. as a failure. And what kind of do you think are the like positive valences of failure in your work? Like the kind of, as well as the failure as being this very painful and difficult thing, particularly in like a social context, but also what are the kind of the queernesses of failure and how does that, if it does as part of your like process and your thinking and, and doing? Yeah. yeah. So um, the question was, what, are, what is the, poten the potential yeah, of like failure? Positive, like what are the positives of failure? Yeah. Yeah, good question. I think in my books, there's obviously the, like, I think um, there's obviously the, there's obviously the humor that comes with failure. That is sort of um, maybe the easy answer. There's a, a humor that has, brings a certain, and humor from, to me is not something shallow or something that's like um, whatever lowbrow. To me, humor is something that's um, a really meaningful way of um, surviving in a way. It's like a, 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 a kind of a, a Queer method, a queer survival method, in some in some ways. So there's humor in failure, obviously, but there's also more clearly, um, radical, more clearly, um, radical political potential. I guess if the the thing doesn't work, if it fails, then we need to think of something else. And I think all of my characters are constantly. They're all hugely active. They're all sort of arguably hyper hyperactive in their weird passivity <laughs> because they are dominated by the structures that oppress them in a way but they're hugely hyperactive in terms of um, trying to turn their failures into at least different failures into at least something more interesting into at least something that is a bit more livable to some extent and somebody said earlier uh, there's like a glimpse of utopia in there in some really weird way so these failures get somehow um, remobilized and get, become transformed into sort of utopian glimpses. So I think that's sort of what I'm aiming to do to some extent. Thanks for that question. In terms of humor and failure, I think of that Quentin Crisp line, <laughs> if at first you don't succeed, then failure may be your style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, you talked about sort of the separation of literature and the real struggle of the working classes um, and I find with your book specifically it's very interesting how it isn't just you don't just thematically and sort of plot wise 
endeavor to give voice to working class experiences like watching TV or like these really basic things like you talk a lot about working class clothing. Yeah. Um, but also I think in language, so you do this, I feel like you do this thing in every book of yours, I think, where instead of saying go to somewhere or go yeah. to the somewhere, you say go somewhere, yeah. like we're going to go pub or whatever. Yeah. Um, even small things like that. I, I think for me as a queer working class person, ironically, reading your work is actually really easy, yeah. if anything. Yeah. Um, does that sort of working class language and experience find its way into your books just naturally? Or are you purposefully doing it to sort of disrupt and off put the chattering classes and sort of give some sort of comfort and utopia to working class people? I mean, that's a brilliant question. Thank you. Yeah. Um, no, I do this very deliberately. I, I, I bring the, the class aspects as well as the queer aspects. I bring them in on the, onto the level of language as well as in terms of form and content. So yeah, I do this entirely deliberately. And it's interesting to me that um, you say that it's actually um, kind of easy to read. And I've, I find that interesting and I find that meaningful in the sense that the novel is always assumed to be a particular thing that is entirely neutral. So it's just meant, it's sort of a, the novel is seen to be, if you want to universalize it like that, it's seen to be great fiction. That's how you write. But what we, what we don't think about is that what as a, sort of the average literary novel or the average mainstream um, general fiction novel is written in a very particular kind of language, which is precisely highly white and middle class. So what people often say about my work is that it's different, and it's different in the sense that it's not, it's not just conforming to this sort of normalized expectations we have of language and fiction. So exactly, it's, it comes to, to me kind of natural these days, but it's obviously also a highly um, sort of, um, it's a kind of like a highly, art, it's an artifice in the sense that it's a practice that I've developed over, like, as I said, 20 years. So it comes naturally now, but it comes through a lot of labor as well. But it, it's, it always sort of channels something of, of myself into it exactly, and also of my readers, because that's the thing, the assumption of the reader is also always that they're white and middle class, whereas this is not the case clearly at all. Um, is, there, is there anybody right at the back, maybe, for the, la the last question? Is there anybody at the back that hasn't had a chance to speak that would like to say something? Yeah, there's one. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just genuinely interested in what's your favorite part of the book, because I know you've said this is your favorite book. You think you're, you know, in terms of the development of your writing. So what's your favorite chapter? What's my favorite part? part of this particular book? Yeah. All right, it's the ending. It's obviously the ending. <laughs> <laughs> it has a completely out there ending whereby, you know, I told you already about the wormholes where there's like stuff, like um, space and time defying passageways. But in the end, at the ending, it sort of even goes up a notch and they're stuck, it's stuck in a time loop. So it's completely out there and it allows them, it's kind of fun, fun and hilarious, but it's also kind of serious because it allows them to um, relive some of their past selves and sort of um, kind of like incorporate them into their presence and so on and so forth. I'm not going to give it away, but there's like a, a, an, a, an outrageous 
um, ending involving time loops. You know, like in Russian Doll, for example, you know that TV show? Like that. Sort of the last couple of chapters are all about being in a time loop. That's my favorite, favorite part, I think. Um, it, feel, it feels like the last chapter is an affirmation of everything that goes on, on in the book, which is the possibility of fiction to be anything at all. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. yeah. Um, please join me in uh, thanking Isabel, and um, they will be signing books in just a moment. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.